Our scripture this morning comes from Second uh, Kings chapters 18 and 19. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places, and broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Reb Saris, and the Reb Shekah, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver you. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, 
and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Oh, what a powerful story. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, this year, really the entire 2014, we are making our way through all of the Old Testament, if that's even possible in a year, looking at kind of the history that God is telling, the story uh, that is being told about the people of Israel, God's mission in the world, and the people that he has for that mission, and what it means for us to live into the story that he's been telling. And it's a story that has a certain narrative arc, as all good stories do, toward the hope of a happily ever after. And the happily ever after, at the end of the story, is human flourishing in abundance. That's what we're headed towards. How is God going to bring about what he's promised? Human flourishing in abundance. And right in the middle of this story, this long story, there's this huge section, this chunk, about all the different kings of Israel in, in, in um, books like 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and so on. And the reason the Bible takes up so much space talking about the 400 to 450 years of the kings is because there was a prophetic connection between the hope of the happily ever after at the end of the story and the work of the kings, and ultimately one king in particular, the son of David who would come. And it's interesting, almost every king that's mentioned, almost every king, if you read these books, and I hope you will, I hope you have, we'll be back to them in community Bible reading in a couple of years, but if you read almost every king that's mentioned, particularly the kings in Judah and the south, They are all linked to David. So you might read, as you would hear in in, uh, chapter 18, verse 3, he did what was right, talking about Hezekiah, in his own eyes, or excuse me, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Okay, so there's this connection back to David. Or you might read, as you would in chapter 16, about another king, he did not do right as his father David had done. And so it's, it's just fascinating to see that even here, All roads lead back to David, and this is because the prophets had said that the son of David, if you would permit me a big word, the great eschatological king would be the one who would bring the happily ever after. That's the big picture, see, that's happening here. Now, to apply this a little more concretely with what we have before us, given that today is Father's Day, on a much smaller scale, what I would say is something I said a few weeks ago, that there is a connection between human flourishing and abundance in the work of kings. In the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, there were bad kings and there were good kings, and there were a whole lot more bad kings than there were good kings. But anytime uh, a bad king you know, shows up, a person who is selfish and greedy and oppressive, things go really badly for the people. And every time, every now and then, when a good king comes along, a king who loved God and who uh, did what was right, under his reign, what happens is, is, is all of a sudden there's flourishing. The people of Israel, they flourish, there's peace, God blesses, there's abundance. And so we're left to see, undeniably, there is a link in the Bible, and I think in life, and reality, between human flourishing and abundance in the work of kings. So there are all kinds of Father's Day applications this morning. So dads, pay careful attention, please. And moms too. And bosses. 
and parents and supervisors and so forth. Now, one of the best kings, one of the best kings in the history of Israel then was this man, Hezekiah, okay? And that's who we're going to look at this morning, his story here in um, 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20, although we're really going to stay within chapters 18 and 19. And here's what we read about Hezekiah, verse 3. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done, which means he was obedient and faithful, and as a result, the kingdom flourished under his rule. But what was it that made Hezekiah such a great king? And what's neat about the chapters that we're going to look at this morning is how clearly they show us what it was about this man that led to his success, the thing that was true of him that caused those under him to flourish, that if it were true of us, would cause people under us to flourish as well. So dads, this is what you want to be known for. This is the defining characteristic of anyone in leadership that that follows Jesus. We read it there in verse 5. Here it is. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So the defining characteristic of Hezekiah's life, Hezekiah trusted God. And that word trust, that idea of what trust, he trusted the Lord, becomes the theme for the entire story. It's repeated over and over and over again, almost it's redundant. In chapters 18, 19, and 20, this idea of trust. And so it's our theme this morning too, okay? So we're going to look at what it means to trust the Lord. And we're going to do it under three headings, three questions about trust that we want to provide an answer for this morning. And they're just this. First, what does it mean to trust God? What does it mean? What does the Bible mean when it says of Hezekiah he trusted in the Lord? But secondly, what we see as the story unfolds is we're also shown the enemies or the obstacles to trusting in the Lord. And then thirdly, the last question that we want to answer this morning is, well, what is it ultimately that makes God's, God trustworthy or what vindicates our trust in him? So those three questions are the three we want to answer, okay? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? What are the obstacles or the enemies to that trust? And ultimately, what vindicates our trust or what is it that makes God trustworthy, okay? So let's look at all three of those beginning with this. Just this first question, what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Uh, I was a youth pastor for a long time, and of course, back in the the 80s and 90s, um, the cheese factor of youth ministry and evangelicalism was at an all-time record high. Uh, Do you know what I mean by that? Never mind. That just, whoop, just cheesiness, kind of silliness, you know. One of the things that we would do, and I don't know why we felt like we had to continue to repeat this thing over and over again, but one of the things youth pastors loved to do in my heyday as a youth pastor was to do what we would call, you'd take your kids away to camp, and in order to build team, you know, spirit among your your uh, youth group, you would do trust falls, right? Anybody know what these are? So you would, you would stand up on a chair, and then you'd line all the kids up behind the kid that's on the chair, and, and one, two, three, and the kid would fall, you know, fall straight back and depend upon the people behind him to, to catch them. And of course, every youth pastor's favorite thing to do is to take the largest child in the youth group, put them on the chair, then line the, the line with middle school girls all looking up like, oh, you know. How's this going to work? And of course, on their own, they could never have caught the large kid, but together with the arms locked, it works and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, in many ways, that is an apt metaphor for what it means to trust. Trust falls. And the reason it works is because to trust means literally to put your life in somebody else's hands. Hezekiah trusted the Lord, he put his life into God's hands, which means he stopped worrying about the outcomes. I mean, Hezekiah knew that even though he was the king, he was the most powerful man in the kingdom. Ultimately, he wasn't even in control of his life. 
And in his own strength, he couldn't arrange for the life he wanted. He knew that even though he wasn't in control, God was in control. And so what Hezekiah did, literally what's happening here is Hezekiah took his hands off his life and he put it in God's hands instead. And the Hebrew word there means something like to rely on or to have confidence in. That's what it means to trust. And so to rely on something means you need it. You can't do life without it. You'd be completely lost without it, right? I mean, whatever it is is a source of confidence and hope for you. So your trust is the thing that gives you confidence, the thing that produces hope. And for Hezekiah, it was the Lord. Hezekiah didn't draw his confidence from the size of his army or from how full his treasury was. He wasn't intimidated by his own weakness or by the strength of his political adversaries because all of his confidence and hope were in the Lord. So trusting means, very simply, it's just kind of the definition I want to work with this morning. Trusting means taking, means you take your hands off your life and you put it in, in God's hands. And that sounds like a little more sophisticated, again, less cheesy way of saying what we like to say in Christian circles sometimes, let, God, let go, let God, right? And the problem, the problem with the reason I don't really like that phrase a whole lot is that most of the time people talk like that and they do it, and what's behind it is this kind of fatalism that sours into cynicism and passivity. Oh, just don't worry about it. There's nothing really you can do anyway. So just kind of let go and let God work it out. But when King says that Hezekiah trusted God, it doesn't mean he threw up his hands and he gave up. It means that his confidence shifted. As C.S. Lewis put it, he changed from being confident about his own efforts and looked instead to God to make good all of his deficiencies. He took his hands off his life. And he put it in God's hands, but that didn't lead to resignation or, or inaction. In fact, just the opposite. It led to some very bold action on his part. And so I want to spend some time making a few applications of what it looked like in Hezekiah's life, and I think in ours too, for us to trust the Lord. And I want to make specific application to fathers, since today's Father's Day. And I want to try to state these in a way that, that is memorable, so I may or may not have kind of drifted a little bit away from, you know, the particulars, just because I wanted to say it and summarize it in a way that hopefully is memorable to you. So just bear with me if some of this seems a little, uh, a little flowery, I guess is the way I would put that, Okay. So let me make four applications from the text right here at the beginning about what it looked like in Hezekiah's life for him uh, to trust the Lord, what the practical difference was that, was that 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 made in his life. Okay, first, one of the first implications was that he was an emotional rock, not a roller coaster. You know the difference, right? We like don't the roller coaster up and down and up and down and this this wild ride. But but Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Hezekiah was was a rock. And this is the idea behind the language in verse 6 where we're told he held fast. He held fast to the Lord. And the best metaphor, particularly since it's the time of year where everyone in Winter Haven goes to Little Gasparilla Island, right? The best metaphor that I know of is, uh, is an anchor. And what's the job of an anchor? What's an anchor's job? The anchor keeps you in place so that the wind and the current don't push you off the spot where you want to fish, Right? So Hezekiah, literally, he's anchored, his emotional anchor was the Lord. He was tied to the Lord and what he knew to be true of God. The Lord was his emotional anchor, not his circumstances, which meant that even when his circumstances began to change and to shift and bad things started happening in his life, he was unmoved. He remained unmoved. He was a rock. There was an inner strength and courage about his life that wasn't dependent upon 
what was going on around him. In fact, what happens in the story is that things start to go really badly. We'll see in just a minute. But there's no indication that Hezekiah is shaken. And that's what his people needed from him. When the heat of the battle is on, everyone looks to the leader and it's the leader's job to be a rock. And so, if I can make application to fathers and men this morning, men be a rock. That's what your children need. It's what your wife needs. They need you to be a rock. If you're more roller coaster than rock, it's because you're trusting something other than God and that something, whatever it is, is being threatened. It's being taken away. But he was, Hezekiah was, an emotional rock, not a roller coaster. Second, let's make another application. He was proactive, not passive. Hezekiah intentionally and proactively led the people in wholehearted obedience to the Lord. So look there. We read again in verse 6. He did not depart from following God, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded. That was his job. That was the king's job. In Deuteronomy 17, the law legislated that when a king came to power, the first thing he was to do on his first day in office was to take the law and in his own hand to write himself his own copy and then commit all of his life to be constantly reading it and applying it to his administration because it was his job to lead the whole kingdom toward faithfulness to God. And so application number two to men, particularly fathers this morning, is men lead. There was much about the feminist movement in the 70s that was necessary and helpful, but the fallout has been devastating, I think. It's created this pendulum swing where now masculinity is under attack and men are no longer allowed to be men. But men, I want to say, there is a reason why when we baptize a child in this church, I say to the father... These words, as the covenant head of the house, what is the name of your child? Is a way of laying the responsibility for that child at the feet of that man. So men, do you read the Bible with your kids and pray with them? Do you catechize them? Do you schedule and plan your Saturday so that you're able to be here on Sunday? Do you wake everybody up on Sunday and get them ready and make sure they're here and on time and prepared for worship? Do you talk about the sermon over lunch? Are you proactively leading your family or your neighbors or your friends toward faithfulness? Hezekiah was proactive, not passive. Third, a third, okay? Third, just a third application from what I think we find here is the third thing I see that he did is that he made decisions on principle, not popularity. Hezekiah was the kind of king, the kind of leader, who did what was unpopular, but was what was good for his people. Uh, verse 4, he removed the high places and broke pillars. This is the, these are the places of idol worship where the people were going to worship false gods. Okay, He removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the asher, we're told. And this would have undoubtedly hurt him politically. His approval rating would have plummeted, but he was willing to be unpopular if it meant doing what was right and good for the kingdom. No other king in the history of Israel was willing to do these sorts of things. And so my, my third application to men, to fathers in particular, but to all of us is be unpopular. Do the right thing. If your teenager hates you because you did the right thing, trust God. It's going to be okay. God's got his hands on your kids. He's got his hands on your life. You can take your hands off. Hezekiah acted on principle, not for the sake of popularity. He didn't make decisions based on what would get him ahead in life. He did the right thing, even if it hurt. And then lastly, just a last little application here at the beginning is 
Fourthly, so let me, let me recap, I guess. That would be a good thing to do. He was, I can't remember him. I don't expect you to. I've got to look back. He was a rock, not a roller coaster. He was proactive, not passive. He made decisions based on principle, not popularity. But lastly, he was bold, not bashful in the face of evil. And we read in verse 7 that he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And this is the big deal in the passage. In the fourth year of his reign, we're told, the Assyrians besieged Samaria. This is what Jeff preached on a few weeks ago, the capital city in the north in Israel. Three years later, they took the city. And then what, what we assume is they began to make their way to the south to Judah with the intent of capturing Jerusalem in the same way that they captured Samaria. And this is what led to the crisis that makes up the rest of the story. The mighty Assyrian army, the superpower of the world, descends upon Judah But we're told Hezekiah doesn't give in, he doesn't cower, he doesn't run away, he takes his stand. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to him. And Isaiah's message in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 19 are this. He says, don't be afraid, Hezekiah. God will give you victory. And Hezekiah trusts the Lord. He is severely outmanned, he's severely outmatched. He is the king of one tiny little kingdom against the world's superpower, and yet he does not give in to fear and unbelief. He's bold. He takes his stand. And so the application for us this morning, and particularly for men and fathers, is men, meet evil head on. People who trust the Lord meet evil head on. It would be so easy to cower before the tidal wave of unbelief currently sweeping across our culture, to want to run and hide, to disengage. But that's not, it's not time to be bashful. It's time to be bold. Because that's what trust in the Lord looks like. So, deep trust, taking your hands off your life, putting your hand, putting, putting it in God's hands. Deep trust in God doesn't produce passive, resigned whininess. Instead, it creates firm, resilient, humble, loving defiance of evil. So that's what trust is. Hezekiah, where we read, trusted in the Lord. So there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, after him, nor among those who were before him. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Don't you want that to be true of your life? If so, the second question we have to answer then is, well, what are the obstacles? What are the enemies of this kind of trust that leads to this kind of, you know, these kinds of things that we're talking about? What are the obstacles? What are the enemies? And let me explain a little more of the story in order to bring that out. See, the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, did not take kindly to Hezekiah's rebellion. (laughs) So he sent his army to besiege Jerusalem. We find that in verse 17 of chapter 18. But what's interesting is is they don't build siege works and begin an assault immediately. Instead, what what happens is is they begin a propaganda campaign. The Rabshakeh, who was something like the field commander. We're not really sure exactly who this person was, but something like the field commander. He begins to taunt the men manning the walls of Jerusalem. Look at verse 19. He says... Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on whom or on what do you rest this trust of yours? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And then he goes on for a long time, and then down in verse 28, he says to these men, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. And so this is the strategy. And it's really interesting. It's a, it's a propaganda campaign. And of course, World War II solidified propaganda as a weapon of war. It was a huge, I wasn't around, but so I'm told. It was a huge strategy for both the Germans and the Allied forces because they both understood something that's very true, and that's that perception is reality. And so if you could demonize the enemy, then 
you could motivate troops to fight with even more passion. Or on the other hand, if you could take away people's confidence, if you could demoralize them, uh, if, you could, if you could convince your enemy that the war was over, that there was no more hope, that there was no use in fighting, then you could take the fight out of them. And so this, this whole idea of a propaganda campaign, propaganda are, is lies that are used to manipulate people to whatever end you desire. And it's the strategy that the Assyrians employ. These voices, I call it voices of unbelief. Don't follow Hezekiah, the Rabshakeh says. Don't trust in God. He can't save you. They're trying, to make, they're trying to avoid bloodshed. They're trying to make the people doubt so that they will give in. They're trying to cause the people in the city to lose heart so that they'll give up. And it's interesting because it is the same strategy that our ancient enemy used against the first man and the first woman at the very beginning. Do you remember? What was Satan's strategy in the garden with Adam and Eve? Propaganda. Did God really say? God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be happy. See, this is the way of evil. This is the way of evil. It's right here to create unbelief, to cause us to doubt that God is there or that he's good. And it's a constant, subtle push to make God marginal, to push him to the periphery of life so that you go through life with what the Puritans called slight thoughts of God, of sin, of grace, mercy, of heaven and hell, and all spiritual truth. And here's what we're really up against here. I want you to see from two, two angles. There is, on the one hand, the, the cultural voice of unbelief that increasingly mocks faith that you can see here in this figure, the Rab Shekah, the cultural voice of unbelief that increasingly mocks faith that says if you're a Christian, you're just stupid. And in many ways, our experience mirrors Israel's in this story. We are under attack. We are surrounded in our culture. We are outnumbered. And if you turn on the TV or the radio, there is a steady stream of propaganda and the voice of unbelief is so loud, it's hard not to give in to cynicism. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine how hard it was for the men on the walls of Jerusalem staring out at this vast Assyrian army to not begin to despair? I mean, wasn't what the Rab Shekah was saying true? Hadn't every other people fallen before this great king, Sennacherib of Assyria? And in many ways, the cultural propaganda machine that we face is designed by the enemy to erode our confidence in the Lord and to cause us, even subtly, to begin to put our hopes in other things. Because here's the thing, please, if he can get you to put your hope in something other than the Lord, he's got you. And here's why. Because every other hope can be taken away. He can take everything else away. There's only one thing he can't take away. And if he can get you to put your hope in something else, then he's got you because then you can live under the constant threat of that thing being taken away from you. And so there's this massive, loud, cultural voice of unbelief. What makes it so powerful is that it meets with the voice of unbelief, not from the outside, what the Bible would also teach us is that what sin has done to us is that we now have to deal with, a voice of our own, with the voice of our own hearts, which is constantly being tempted to unbelief and giving in. So there's this internal voice of unbelief that matches the external and amplifies it, which is what leaves us undone most times. John Owen, a famous Puritan, put it this way. He said, if the castle or fort be never so strong and well fortified, yet if there be a treacherous party within that is ready to betray it on every opportunity and let down the drawbridge. There is no preserving it from the enemy. There are traitors, he said, in our own hearts 
ready to take part, to close and to side with every temptation, and to give up all of them, and to give up all uh, to them, he says. So there is an internal, there's an internal voice of unbelief that amplifies the external voice of unbelief, a traitor within us that is ready to side with every accusation against the Lord in partying with that accusation and being led into unbelief and sin. And before this, sometimes it feels like we are completely undone. And so what you see, but I want you to see true here also what, what, uh, what the particular strategy is in this voice, this man, the Rabshakeh, what he's really trying to accomplish with these people, okay? Because there's this external voice matched by the internal voice and even amplified by it. But what is the, de- what is, what is the message of the, of the propaganda machine that's being perpetrated here? And the first thing the Rabshakeh does is he attacks God's greatness. He says, and he gives two speeches. And the first speech is really an attack on God's greatness. He says, the Lord can't save you. All the other gods of the peoples have fallen before Sennacherib and his army, and Yahweh's no different. But if God is not great, then the psalmist can't sing, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And forgive the sports analogy, but it is Father's Day. But if we were playing two-on-two and LeBron James was on my team, then I'd be a punk. i am be honest, I'd be a punk. I'd be walking around saying, LeBron is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? But give me Jonah Hill, for example. I don't know, whoever. And not skinny Jonah Hill, but like overweight Jonah Hill and Moneyball. Okay? All of a sudden, I'm not so confident. So the attack is God's, God's not great. God's not, God's not worthy of your trust. He can't outdo, he can't overpower Sennacherib in this greatest Syrian army. The second attack by the Rabshakeh is that in the second speech down in chapter 18 is that Yahweh is not good. And for me, personally, this is the one that's more profound. It literally goes all the way back again to the garden. And it's fascinating. Look at verses 32, excuse me, 31 through 33. The language of the Rabshakeh is recorded very specifically by the compiler of this material. So you've got to look carefully at it. And I'll summarize it. He's, saying, he's speaking for the king of Assyria when he says, I will take you to a land of grain and wine, a land of milk and honey. Which, of course, echoes the language the Lord used with Israel in Egypt. And the implication that he's making is this. Yahweh has not kept his promise to you. I will give you what he has not given to you. He's not good, but I am. And so here's the attack. Now let's think for a minute. If, if you don't believe God is great, or if you don't believe God is good, see that, what the Bible would teach us is that's the sin that's underneath every sin. That's what's driving us toward temptation and sin. I mean, go back to the applications we made earlier, okay? Let's just, I mean, we could do this all day long. I've got like two minutes to do this so we can be done on time. But if you just take a couple of those things that we talked about earlier, wherever, okay, wherever any of those four applications I made are hard for you, it's because there is some level of unbelief, whether, that, whether it is that you struggle or fail to believe that God is not great or whether it's that you struggle to believe that he's not good or some combination of the two, Wherever it's hard for you, wherever there's temptation, wherever you find yourself stuck in sin, it's because there's some level of unbelief. So if you don't believe that God's great, for example, then you won't be bold in the face of evil. I mean, consider the political climate that we find ourselves in. Right? What's the typical response of people in our culture to kind of all the political mess that's going on? Either, as I see it, I mean, I, you, could, you could challenge me, but from my vantage point, it's either one of two things. Either it's just withdrawal. Or, you know, withdrawal and pout. <laughs> or 
attack and demean the other side. So it's either fear or just straight out aggression and both stem from unbelief. Because if you believe that God is still in control and that he's still working out his will, that he is not off his throne, then you won't disengage because you haven't lost hope even though it's going badly. But you won't go on the attack either. You can be faithful. You can speak the truth. You can patiently endure the process. You can humbly submit to the circumstances that he has ordained. You can even try to love the other side. Okay, just one example. But another, if you don't believe God's good, if it's on the other hand, it, it, on the other side, if you're not confident that he loves you, that he's for you, that he's going to work all things out for your good, then, then you will be a whole lot more roller coaster than rock. I mean, we joke in our house, it's the running joke, uh, that bad luck in a card game is enough to convince us that God is against us, not for us. <laughs> for us. I'm serious. I'm not, that's, you can laugh, but that's straight up the truth, man. That's all it takes, and I'm off the rails. Right? Because, because there's just this deep sense of, I, I really struggle to believe that God is good. And, and it's so pervasive, it creates unbelief, which leads me... I am most times a whole lot more roller coaster than I am rock. Okay, the applications are endless. But do you see what I'm you see what I'm trying to do? Where is their unbelief? You'll see it coming up in the places where temptation gets you. So uh, lastly then, let's finish. If if the if if what we're aiming for is trust, if the the obstacle is the these voices of unbelief that create doubt in our hearts, then lastly, the answer that we have to conclude with is, is, then how do you fight for trust? Or what makes, excuse me, God trustworthy? What is it that ultimately vindicates our trust that we see here in this passage? And you see it in what Hezekiah does. Okay, so down in chapter 19, Hezekiah goes to the temple. Verse 14, and he begins to pray. And in his prayer, he begins to answer the accusation of the Rabshakeh in his own heart. He begins to talk to his heart. And we've said this over and over again, but it bears repeating. This is the way you battle unbelief. You have to talk to your heart. He first reminds himself that God is great. Verse 15, as he begins to pray, You are enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. In other words, he's saying, God, you are not just another God. You are the true God. You are the God of gods, the all-powerful creator of all things. And everything that happens happens because you will it. He's reminding himself of the greatness of God. But then he goes on and he also begins to meditate and remind himself that God is good. Look what he goes on to say, verse 16 and following. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. In other words, Hezekiah is saying, I know that you are a God who not only is enthroned above the cherubim, high in heaven and exalted, but you are near to your people and you hear our prayers and you see and you're moved to compassion and you come to the rescue because you love us. And what you see Hezekiah doing here, Hezekiah is doing theology. I mean, he's doing theology and theological content, theological instruction like this is undervalued by the church these days. And it's a big problem because the power of unbelief, this hit me this morning even as I was thinking about these things, the power of unbelief lies in its irrationality. The reason unbelief is so powerful is because the whole goal is to make us irrational people. I mean, the aim of propaganda is to make people irrational, to stir their emotions and get them all in a, in a fury inside so that they make snap decisions about what you want them to do, to manipulate them. And so, I, warning, emotion is not bad, that's not what I'm saying, but if the problem is irrationality, then the solution is truth. 
content, theology, driven home to the heart, right? The way Hezekiah does here. And so let's do that. Can we do that for a few minutes together? Just practice that the way he does? See, if God is not great, then you shouldn't put your life in his hands. What good would it do? But if God is great, but also not, but he's not good, then you definitely don't want to put your life into the hands of somebody like that. He's likely to get angry and crush you. But if God is great and he's also good, see, then, when, when that begins to come home to your heart, then is when you can begin to sing, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And this is why C.S. Lewis's description of Aslan, the lion, is so brilliant and so enduring. Once the children, you remember, learn that Aslan is a lion, Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver answers, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. See, if God is safe, if you can come before him without your knees knocking, that's, not, that's no good. What good is a God like that before a vast army of your enemies? God like that, uh, can't fill you with confidence, but if God is not good, then you should run and hide from him then too. So the key to our heart's trust is that he is not safe but good, that he is infinitely powerful, holy, righteous, full of vengeance and wrath against his enemies, but also infinitely loving, slow to anger, full of forgiveness and compassion. That's what makes him trustworthy. Hezekiah here goes to the temple because the temple was the place where God's greatness and his goodness meet. Every day in the liturgy of the temple, God's greatness and his goodness were being played out. His holy anger at sin, his insistence that evil be punished, the blood of the sacrifice splayed against the altar, the animals consumed by fire, all of that graphic stuff, but then also the reality that it was a substitute that was being sacrificed, that God is pleased with the death of a substitute because he longs to forgive and show compassion and be merciful Hezekiah goes to the temple because what he sees at the temple is the confirmation that God is definitely not safe, but he is absolutely good. And of course for us, the temple sacrifice points to the one who came and said about himself, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And if what Hezekiah saw here in the temple left little room for doubt, then what we see in Jesus leaves none. Think about Jesus. Think about his person for a minute. By no means was Jesus safe. Read the Gospels. What happens to people in the Gospels when they, when they come you know, and meet Jesus? All the time, people fall down on their faces, scared to death in front of him. But oh, was he good. He healed the sick. He had compassion on the poor. He stayed up late and got up early to take care of people. He was a tender-hearted shepherd, a forgiving friend. But not only that his person, think about the cross. Think about his cross. The cross is the ultimate display of God's greatness, his justice, his commitment to punish evil, and also his goodness, his commitment to meet our needs and to do us good. Look to Jesus, see, this morning, both his person and his cross. Put your confidence in him. If you do that, then you'll be able to say, as the psalmist says, truly the Lord is on my side. You see, there's no, listen, there's no other rational conclusion. It's the only rational option. Look at Jesus. Look at all that God did in him for you. The only rational option is to say, I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as a helper. I will take refuge in him. Now, one last thing and then I'm done. Ultimately, 
God comes to Hezekiah's rescue in a miraculous way. Did you see it down at the end? I mean, did, did you just marvel at it? We're told all the way down at the end of the story, 185,000 soldiers overnight dead. It's a staggering report, but I want you to see what God says is the reason for the rescue. So look back at verse 32 of chapter 19, and God sends Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah again. And here's what Isaiah said on this trip. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into my city. Verse 34, For I will defend this city and save it for my own sake. What's God's motivation? He's motivated to save Jerusalem because of his glory, because his glory is at stake. God's glory is at stake in our trusting of him because when we don't trust him, when we turn instead to something else, we are claiming supremacy for that thing over him. But God loves his glory. Jesus taught us, didn't he, to always pray, our Father in heaven, your name be praised. And how do you live in such a way that the name of God is praised, that God gets glory from your life? Here's the answer. You trust him because by trusting him, you show his surpassing worth. God loves to work for those that trust him because he loves to put his glory on display for the whole world to see. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. May it be the same with us. Let's pray together. Can we do that? Thank you for this story, Father for the way that it so mirrors what is our experience in this world and yet holds out such hope to us. Frail, broken, weak people in need of of deliverance and salvation. And so we look to you this morning. Would you, by your spirit, come and work in our lives in such a way to dispel all the propaganda, all the lies that we have bought into, all of the ways that our hearts are prone to distrust and to cynicism and, and to, um, Father, just the ways that we, that we look to you and we're suspicious. And we don't look at all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus and marvel at it and say there's no other rational, there's no other rational choice for me but to conclude that you indeed do love me. How we stomp upon your love. We commit our greatest sin by not believing at the end of the day, at the end of all that you've done on the cross by not believing in your great love for us. So forgive us. Come and work in our hearts this morning the truth that you are great and that you are good, that you're not safe, but that you're good. And may it transform the way we live. May it give us confidence and hope we've never had before. May the result be that we would live lives that would ultimately honor and glorify you. For that's what we pray and it's what we know you want from us as well. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This benediction is an argument. It is a plea from the Lord before we leave. Just because he knows knows the weakness of our own hearts. He continues to to, uh, move and overture towards us in love. And so receive this pledge. This is a pledge that as he sends us into the world, he does not send us alone. He promises to be by our side, to be a helper in time of need to be for us so that wherever we go, we might prosper. So receive, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive this pledge and put your trust in him because he is trustworthy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.